everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is interviewing Marcus Allen, the lead pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church here in Madison. We'll learn a little bit about himself, his work at Mount Zion, and his leadership in protests and advocacy since George Floyd's death. If you have any further questions or feedback, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, this is Nick. I'm here with Marcus Allen. He is the pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church. Just published his first book, I've Got Next, which is about pastoral transitions. Marcus, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, a couple of housekeeping things just to get people um, to get to know you a little bit. You and I have known each other since you got here. You know Mike Beresford, our executive pastor, a couple other people. But not everybody at High Point knows you yet. Can you tell them a little bit about like how you got here, Mount Zion's? background uh, not everybody knows well i'm marcus allen i was born in clarksdale mississippi raised in Milwaukee, wisconsin uh joined the army in 2001 went across the world a couple of times twice to iraq and once to afghanistan uh felt the call of god to um pastor in my life i've been preaching since i was 13 years old and i um, started pastoring when i was 28 at uh union branch baptist church in prince george virginia um, and while I was in seminary, I was thinking we had been traveling pretty much mo- most of my life. And so I wanted to be closer to my family, uh, my mom and my brothers, uh, my siblings. And I prayed about it and God opened the door. I was talking to one of my professors from seminary and he was telling me about a church that was, had just opened up here in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was uh, Mount Zion. I applied and uh, they accepted me. And so that's how I got here in uh, Madison. And your family's in Milwaukee right now. Most yeah. of it, your mom, at least. Yeah. And you were like, you were 32 when you took that job, I think, right? Where? Here? Here? No, I went, when I was in, uh, I was 29, 2012. Eight. Uh, I was 29. Yeah, I was almost okay. 30. Sweet. Sweet. So, um, so some things a few people know about your mom is your mom actually got COVID-19 fairly early mm-hmm. in the whole shakedown. Right. And there's, there was a story related to that because they didn't, the, the people who came to see her, I think they called EMTs, right? And they didn't think she should go to the hospital. Right. And she thought she should go to the hospital. And that became, that became kind of an issue because you, you expressed public dismay over that kind of, mm-hmm. those kinds of choices being made by medical professionals out in the field. Right. She recovered? Yes, sir. Did you feel like that did anything? Like, did you feel like people, like the EMTs were like, oh, shoot, yeah, we need to be right. more careful about this or be more, know more about symptoms or we just need to be more careful recognizing there might be more cases in the black community in Milwaukee or... Right. So, so she, um, you know, early on, about March 19th was the first time she was experiencing symptoms. Um, she had an ear infection and she had um, she had a fever um, and she went to her doctor and they didn't think nothing of that. No, they just thought it was the normal thing. But however, it was during COVID-19. Everything was pretty much shut down by that time. Yeah. And uh, she went back to the doctor, you know, um, and they just told her she had a sinus infection. Uh, and then she uh, talked to her doctor over the phone and she just gave her a prednisone for the cough. Because uh, right. bear cough, so she has all the symptoms of COVID nineteen, but no one thought it was COVID nineteen. 
Okay. Uh, and, you know, at that time, they wasn't testing unless you was showing extreme shortness of breath. Right. So, uh, I think it was about April 9th. April 9th, my mom, I called my mom, check on her. And, uh, and she was like, she had shortness of breath. She had a severe cough. She had an ear, she had an ear infection. And uh, we called the EMT. Um, the fire department showed up when they came. Um, they didn't even come with a, a thermometer to check her temperature. And her temperature was 103 by her own thermometer that she had. Uh, they checked her lungs. They said she had some, something was in her lungs, but then they said she wasn't sick enough um, to go to the hospital. However, after they did their investigation, um, the Milwaukee Fire Department admitted that they were wrong for not taking her to the hospital. And they yeah. implemented new practices to ensure they do the right thing uh, for other COVID-19 um, people. So you felt like you you felt like there there was some response that like oh, yeah. you brought that up and you were like, hey, you guys. And they were like, yeah, we were. That was. And they weren't just like, well, she got tested for COVID-19. So we were clearly we were objectively wrong. They were like, no, based on the symptoms she had, we should have known enough to take her in. Right. They shouldn't. And if they didn't take her in, they should have uh, told her why not. Uh, yeah. they, 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 they publicly admitted, the uh, the fire chief, the assistant fire chief from Milwaukee, uh, fire department publicly admitted that they were totally wrong, uh, for what happened. And, um, and, and they changed their practices, um, because of it. And, um, so I'm grateful for that. And also yeah. Aurora, um, clinics in Milwaukee also changed their practices too, because she had called the doctors, um, and, and no one never called her back. And that was before nine one one, because they wasn't taking anybody to come in. They they didn't want nobody to come into their offices. Right. So she called, and um, then her doctor said no, she she never called. Her her nurse said she never called. But after they did the investigation, they discovered that she actually did have called. They had it in their log that she had called, but no one informed the doctor that she had called. Huh. So they changed their practices also in, in answer, asking the questions and making sure everyone, uh, if someone had any of the symptoms, they was trying to make do the best that they can. But uh, again, during that time, they wasn't testing like they right. Okay. My, the listeners will not forgive me if I spend too much time on this subject because there's like 19 things I need to ask you about. But I do want to say I'm, I'm just so glad your mom's doing right. better. Yeah, she's doing much, um, better, much better. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a couple of deaths um, connected to High Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just terrible. I mean, just the right. fact it's had, I, um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. We haven't had any deaths, uh, connected to Mount Zion. We've had some cases, um, yeah. but we have uh, recovered. So I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. We haven't had any deaths in the congregation, but yeah. there's a young man named Arsenio in our congregation. His mom went, went on a trip to Illinois to see some friends Oh yeah, we, and, she, and she, and, and a friend of hers died. It was terrible. Had, yeah. We yeah, had people that are connected to families of Mount Zion. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for none of our members. Yeah. Okay. So you wrote a book called I've Got Next, which is about pastoral transitions. So this must mean you feel like the pastoral transition at Mount Zion is going okay. Like right. you're through it. You've been three, four years. What is it now? It'd be four years in October. Four years. Okay, great. So feel good. You feel like the church is doing well. It's healthy. Yeah. I mean, obviously COVID-19 is a huge wrench right. and all that, but, but you it, feel like it's moving in the right direction. I think, uh, I think we're getting stronger. Um, Wow. The amount of people I know are excited. I mean, they're they're really happy with your pastor. Is, is what I hear from the people I talk to. While we are away, I think we're getting stronger, and I think our church would be better 
uh, when we do come back. Right now, we're still not meeting. Um, so we've we've been able to enhance our technology. We've been yeah. able to extend our reach. Um, we've been able to uh, meet the needs of more people. Uh, yeah. But it's uh, this transition. Um, when I when I was coming to Mount Zion, I was in the middle of my writing portion of my um, doctoral degree. And uh, so I was able to take those principles <laughs> that I write in the book. I was able to take those and apply them um, while going into Mount Zion. So it's been a great transition. Uh, most say that I hear that it takes about seven years to have a good transition where people begin to believe that you are their pastor. Uh, yeah. I can say it was in year two uh, where I, uh, the practices in which I implemented the lessons that I talk about in the book helped me to become the pastor of, of the church because just because your name is on the marquee or the bulletin, uh, yeah. I mean, you're the pastor. Uh, yeah, they say that you're still the last guy's associate pastor for a long time. <laughs> Did you write anything about um, having an intentional interim pastor before you instead of coming right into the mess directly? Do you have a few on that? Because that happened at my church too. Like at High Point, they had a intentional interim pastor who was never going to be the senior pastor, older guy, retired. And he did a bunch of counseling and stuff. I was very grateful for that because when I got there, I was expecting to have to do all this healing work or just like kind of hang around and just pastor for a while before we could really do vision and stuff. Yeah. And the people were like, no, look, we're ready to move. We've, I mean, we've had bad times for long enough. We're ready to go. Did right. you feel like the in, intentional interim really was a great blessing? It was. Did you feel? It, it was. It was a blessing going into Mel's time uh, because it was um, the, my former church I left older congregation over 150 years and and so they were a little slower but coming here it was i said i tell the story it was like jumping in a car with the engine already running mm-hmm. uh, had to put it in drive and go um, yeah ready to go and, and make some moves and make some changes so we've done a lot of stuff over these last three and a half years that's yeah. been, um, impactful in our community and in our church yeah. Our church found, I found that too, that having an intentional, so if you're a listener a listener, and you're like a church member in a church and you are a church that loses, especially a long-term senior pastor or a senior pastor that ended in some kind of really bad thing, right. having an intentional interim for one to two years before you bring in your new senior pastor can be an incredibly helpful step in it. And sometimes there's not a pastor around to tell you that if you're a lay person, cause you just lost your pastor. And so it's a good thing to tuck away. Right. So uh, tell us about Psalm 46. So COVID hits, there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of needs. There's, a, there's something that, um, you know, Henry Sanders and, um, and Michael Johnson like cook up quick, quick. But you know, there's going to be a lot more long term kind of stuff happening. So you and Marcio get together, start Psalm 46, which is a fund to help churches. So, to, brief version of what you did. Longer version of what did you learn? Right. Like, because that must have been difficult with all. You had a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Because mm-hmm. you did it for the whole African American Council of Churches, right. and you didn't have a absolutely clear process starting, right? You had to kind of like come up with how you were going to distribute funds. Like, what did you learn about that kind of leadership? So, uh, no, initially, you no, know, um, it was just a conversation between Marcio and Henry, um, saying what what can the church do during this time, and you know. I'm not a fundraiser, um, and I'm and I'm not afraid to admit that at all. Me either. I'm terrible at fundraising. Yeah, I'm not a fundraiser at all. Um, I come from you no. Know, uh, my pastor said, "Hey, if we can't make it off tithes and offering, we can't make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we wouldn't take any funds from nobody." So that's you no. Know, that's the mentality I basically was under. Um, but yeah. Marcel, he's pretty good at fundraising. Yeah, yes. And um, so we partnered together. 
um, to to be um, the Psalm 46 farm. You know, we just looked at that scripture and just looking at the purpose of that scripture in this time that we're in, that God is our refuge and our strength in the time of trouble. So um, that's why we named this Psalm 46. And then um, we were we was looking at the African-American community and also the Hispanic community, the two communities that's hit the most during this um, pandemic. Uh, basically, you know, most of our people work in wage jobs. Uh, most of them couldn't work from home. Uh, most of them um, didn't have the proper insurance and things. Um, so we say, how, how can we uh, alleviate some of the burden of bills and food and all those things? Did you find it difficult to figure out how to disperse it with like all the different African-American churches that you're dealing with and everybody has all kinds of different needs? Or did you just come up with something and just do it? Right. So initially we came up with just doing a Google form um, and then um, we formed the committee of pastors uh, from all the African-American Council of Churches from our board. Uh, we formed the committee um, to look at the applications approved. At least we didn't disapprove. We didn't deny anyone. If you sent the request, we had a $300 limit. You sent the request mm-hmm. and you had documentation showing that, that that's what you did it for. We paid it. Uh but the challenge is paying other people's bills. Um, that's the challenge um, because a lot of people, a lot of, sometimes the bill is not in the name of the person who is requesting the funds, but they live in the same house or the bill is in the name of somebody that's in the house. So mm-hmm. you don't get all of the account number, the address. So that, that was the challenging part for us uh, when it came. A lot of administration. A lot like- of, yeah. For real. It's just really intensive. Yeah. And so and so we were intentional saying, hey, all this funds going back into the community and we're not paying anyone to do it. So it was me, uh, Bishop Stubbs, Pastor G, uh, Pastor Lofton. Uh, we, we, we're the ones writing checks and paying the bills. So that. after all that, Marcus, are you guys closer friends or, or less close after that? Yeah, we, we, we developed a such a better relationship. Uh, during COVID nineteen, uh, with the pastors of the AACC, um, I've de- I've developed a, a closer relationship with them. Uh, but over that first two months, we realized, yo, this is too much. We um, we did a in May, yeah. did like a simultaneous because you simplified it. Then the second round, right? Yeah. Like how you were going to send out money? Yeah, in May we did like a simultaneous day of giving uh, because some people didn't have access to computers, some people couldn't do the Google form. Um, right. so in May we we set up. Uh, one day at all of our churches, we um, allowed people to come in and bring a bill. We paid up to $150. I think in that day alone, we gave out like $40,000 uh, with the uh, yeah. with the bills. And I think it was like $25,000 uh, with um, Whitman gift cards. Did you guys use uh, some of that money to do the Juneteenth celebration or was that different yeah. funding? Nope. It was the same. It was the same, right? Yeah. So the Juneteenth thing, it was that was tremendous. That was tremendous of how everything came together in such a short time period. And um, Second Harvest partnered with us. Uh, the Collaboration Project partnered with us. Dane County Transportation partnered with us. Uh, and then so we we purchased like um, sixty thousand dollars worth of gift cards. Um, Second Harvest gave out up to a thousand pounds of food per family. So some vehicles left with like 3,000 pounds of food in it. Uh, we gave out like 90,000 pounds of food from the food, uh, from the food pantry. Uh, Dane County uh, Transportation, um, people that couldn't get to us, they came to the, uh, the Lion Energy Center 
packed up the vehicle, and then Dane County drove the food and the gift cards to them. Uh, we also gave out Bibles, masks, and hand sanitizer, and a lot of stuff to deal with census and voting. So that was a major yeah. for us. Um, Dane, um, Second Harvest said they never given out that much food. They Initially, they didn't believe that we would be able to give out that much food on that day. But by the end of the day, they was going to their warehouses um, to get <laughs> So does it feel when you do that, like you get done that day, does it feel like it's a drop in the bucket or do you feel like we made a dip, a big difference? Like how do you feel when, when that day's over? I think uh, ultimately you make a big difference, right? Um, one, you people in the community see the church doing the work. Right. Um, then people also um, that are really in need, you're meeting the need. So if you're just making a difference in one person's life, that's a major difference. Um, and you, all those new people are working together, some of them for the first time, right? You're yeah. building goodwill between organizations mm-hmm. and yeah. people who serve in them. Right. Yeah. So yeah. We, we was able to actually you know, collaborate the volunteers. We have volunteers from all of our churches. And then John from Collaboration Project was able to get some other, other mm-hmm. um, churches uh, to come. And it was just everybody working together, getting the job done. It was an amazing sight. Uh, so I think it, it made a big difference uh, for our community. Uh, for the church. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me shift gears a little bit. You, you've been partnering with Kaleem in One City Schools, which um, are schools that focus on really young kids, mm-hmm. ages one to kindergarten. Is that right? Or do you guys go higher than that? They're in first grade now. They're in first grade. So you're, are you like, you're adding a year, like as you go to build a school up? Yeah, they are. That kind of they are. Okay. My city is. I don't, I don't know about this year, but I know I'm not for certain about this year, but I know I know a bunch of choice schools do that to come into existence. They'll like start with pre-K and kindergarten and then they'll add first and then they'll add second until they're all the way through K through eight or whatever their goal is. Cause it's a feasible, it's like a feasible way to like ramp up a school. Mm -hmm. How's that going? So you've been partnering with them. I think um, Gloria Ladson Billings has been partnering with you guys like, like educational consulting wise. And she's a really active member of your church, right? Like how is that experiment in education going? Well, uh, Dr. Billings is um, a deacon at my church. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, she's been there for a long time. Uh, with her, uh, her in one city is not connected as far as when it comes to Mount Zion. Uh, with okay. her, what she, what she did for us is we just kicked off last week, uh, um, uh, like learning in the park. So we know mm-hmm. kids are missing that in person. Um, right. Memory. Instruction and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we thought let's let us do something. I thought let's do something to help the kids in the community. Uh, so she came up with a thing called Smartly. It's uh, science, social studies, arts, literacy, and math. Each week they're gonna go over one of these things at our at our at Penn Park. And so Dr. Billings came up with that concept, and um, Andrea Davis came up with the curriculum, and then we have a, one of our members running it. So that's that's Dr. Billings' play in our educational piece um, at Mount Zion. Uh, mm-hmm. One city, one city is um, renting our basement. They're using our space um, to uh, house their first grade, um, their first grade uh, classroom, and so they've been. Because the- they have a building across the street from you guys, right? Where they have the rest of it. Yeah, the building is. The rest of it is. Uh, they have a. They have a pre-K. I don't. Do they have a daycare? I think they have a daycare also. Then they got pre-K, preschool. Yeah, I- 
Yeah, they have. They, I know Clem had a real passion for daycare too, and those two things coming together. Yeah, but like, so I, I know that like there was a passion of like trying to get kids started off on the right foot before they get into the early reading grades, and like making sure, especially minority kids and African American kids, are like getting that pre-reading right. educational support that they require, as well as providing like loving and careful daycare for parents that have to work. Right. So, so how like as this experiment, like Kaleem started it, here it is, it's been running for a little while now. Like, is it working? Like, does he feel good about like what it's doing? Are the, do the family, I mean, most importantly, do the families and kids love it? Right. Well, I'm going to say, I feel like it's going. It's not an experiment. They doing it. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. it's, they, they operating in it. It's going well to me. Um, I only say experiment as something that like, for some to make something scalable. So like he's got two locations, but like is I'm I only mean experiment like this could be 30 locations or 50 locations or like well, he only have one you know, just in terms of scale. Yeah, he only have oh, I thought I read on the red site that they had two locations. I guess they just they just have the one. Yeah, I think okay. I'm not But you could imagine you could imagine a day in which there's seven of these around Dane County, right? Yo, so yeah, if he if he be you know, uh I think you know his focus is growing this one, you know, uh mm-hmm. Okay. Because he write on I don't know the other location there. Unless he uses okay. No, I might have just read it wrong. I don't maybe I maybe I just got it wrong. Yeah, so he's um he's um building trying to build a school. Um because you know, I think you know, everybody talks about some years ago when Colleen was trying to present an all boys school, um, but it mm-hmm. was put down by the school board here. Um but but he now his school is I think it's public charter. Um, through the University of Wisconsin, uh, so okay, so I think that that that's what it, that's what it is, and it, it's doing it's doing pretty good. Um, again, kids and the kids' classrooms are a little smaller, and they have more teachers in the classrooms with them, and so I've I've been able to see some interaction that they have with the kids, and some of our members' children go there, and so it's it's been uh, it's been a good sight to see, and I'm glad for Kaleem doing it uh, with One City, and I'm glad that we're able to partner with them. Uh, to be able to provide them the space that they need. Yeah. So anytime they have any programs or anything going on that they need some space to celebrate the kids and stuff, we're able to provide that also. Sounds really good. Okay, so then this last year, George Floyd is killed by police officers, and you got kind of thrust into th- the whole thing. This like Madison, and we had lots of protests, and then you were one of the point people leading what I heard was the largest gathered protest, which was the one led by the African-American council churches. Can you tell us a little bit about like some of the stuff that's like what you, a little bit like what your life has been like right. personally in, in trying to provide leadership for some of this stuff in these months, both right. advocacy and restraint. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, we was in the middle of COVID-19. Um, you know, everybody was, life was trying to adjust. Uh, we was trying to figure out how we're going to move and how things are going to be, how church is going to be. And we was trying to, um, our church picked up where we started um, giving food out to the neighborhood, um, the element, not the school age kids in our area that couldn't get mm-hmm. food. So we started taking food to their houses. Uh, our food pantry opened up longer, um, so more often. So we were just trying to navigate through that and um, just trying to see how um, things were moving. And then George Floyd happened. And and I, I, I want to say we know George Floyd is not the cause of all of the unrest right. that's happened in our nation. It's just it was the tipping point mm-hmm. uh, because it was so vicious and violent and it was all caught on camera. 
um, with this man just so easily snatching the life out of, out of another man. And this, yeah. this man was one who was, has sworn to protect and serve. Um, Did you feel like it was the thing about that video was the, it, it like, cause it wasn't like, like the Rodney King video where like he's being beaten by, like it was like the, the callous disregard, like the offense people took it, like the guy has his hand in his pocket. Right. People are yelling at him. He kind of shrugs his shoulder at, at him. It's just like, and you're kind of like, he knows he's being videotaped. Like it's, it's not like the video is happening with like this advanced piece of equipment from like a two blocks away. Like the, literally the people are holding their phones up in his face. He knows everything he's doing is being recorded. Right. And like, he still, it, it seemed like it was like a metaphor for African-American people being like, this is how we feel. It's this callousness. Just this is like it's just no, just like we don't care, and we're being smothered while you don't care. And it was like a perfect illustration of generations of feeling. Is that do you do you think that's a accurate analysis? That's it, man. Uh, and that's what everything that happens to African Americans in America. Uh, that you have personal experience, right? I, I think I've heard you tell a testament about being a teenager and like right. getting taken to the police station, and for something like and like nobody listens to you. Tell them what you did or didn't do, and right arrested, went to jail, booked, had to get a waiver to go in the United States Army because I had it on my record and I had never done anything wrong. Um, and, and and it's not a nominee, you know, this is not just one act, you know, um, that happened. This was in Milwaukee, right? When you were like a teenager. Milwaukee, yeah. 17 years yeah. old, four o'clock in the morning, police come to my door and arrest me and take me to jail, book me. Um, and even listen to my story, then listen to my aunt that said I was at home. I was a senior in high school. I was getting out of school at nine o'clock. Um, and they took me to, you know, the downtown on State Street. They took me to jail there. He, the investigator could have did his investor, investigated the work and could have let me go from there. Uh, but yet mm. he sent me to the county jail to book me into the county jail. And in, the United, in Wisconsin, if you're 17 and you commit a crime, you're considered an adult. Um, so they didn't send me to no juvenile center. They sent me in where people, murderers and rapists, uh, and people were that had done, done violent crimes or whatever it may be. And I'm 17 years old, never did anything wrong. Uh, I think at that point I hadn't even had a speeding ticket yet. Uh, but but it's still my voice um, didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was a young white boy, male picked my face out of a yearbook and said I tried to strong arm rob him on the city bus at three o'clock in the afternoon when I was driving. I had my own vehicle, and I, again I was getting out of school at nine o'clock. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so so, it, so okay. So then George Floyd happens, right? And you're the president of the African American Council of Churches. Your church is one of the most prominent African American churches in town, right? People are looking to you, right? So what happens? So initially, you no, know, we um. And I'm I'm 100% Christian the way I do things. So we start with prayer. Um, that Monday, um, we uh, at least that yeah, that Monday we had a, a prayer meeting and found the life. Um, all the African American Council of Churches showed up. The pastor showed up, and we prayed. You know, just God give us hope and give us peace. Uh, and that's what we do. You know? uh, that's what we often resort to um, because that's that's who we are. We're Christians and we believe in the power of prayer. And then um, Pastor. Mitchell, Pastor Judge Mitchell asked me, you know, hey, can we do a march? Uh, and and the purpose of the march for me uh, was 
I wanted the church, the universal church, to stand up and stand out against injustice and racism. Um, and, and so that was the goal to bring the universal church together, no matter what you were, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Um, but I wanted people who believed in Jesus Christ um, to come together uh, and stand and march against this, these injustices, not just with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, uh, Eric Gardner. You know, it's just the list goes on. So many names. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it, it's hardening, disheartening. Um, and so I just want the, the universal church, the church to come together and, and it, it, it exploded. Um, it exploded way beyond uh, what I thought uh, it would be, especially on that Sunday after evening when I when, when we went up there and uh, I was giving my little speech. And as I was standing on the bridge on uh, Park Street at the University of Wisconsin, I just can see droves of people um filling the, the streets and many just kept coming in i was stuttering during my speech i i consider myself as a pre- uh, pretty good public speaker yeah you are and uh and when i saw all these people coming in i'm I oh my god i was just stuttering and everything but it, it was There's a lot of people i mean i remember being relatively close to the front and we were coming up state street i looked back and it was like as far as i could see yeah it was I mean, just was- like tons of people i couldn't believe it so it was over 10,000 people who showed up. But but the interesting part, too, was um, they all were not Christian. Um, oh, yeah. So it was different, different faiths, different um, beliefs. They showed up for an event led by Christians. Right. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they showed up with their signs and stuff. So I think that that was um, that was tremendously tremendous. Uh, the energy was high. Um, and and I you know, I, I just want—I just want Christian people, black, you know, especially the white church, to come and stand up and stand out against the injustices that continue to happen in the African American community. Did you feel like just—I mean, whether or not you think they've continued or will—did you feel like in that event there was support? Oh yeah, ten thousand people. Uh, <laughs> water. But did you feel like a lot of like white Christians there? Yeah. Hey, we live in Madison, Wisconsin. If it's 2,000 <laughs> people, probably 2,000 were black people. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Or less. Yeah. Uh, so the I saw, a ton of, saw a ton of white pastors that I know there yeah. and people from their churches. Yeah. Just a lot. I saw a lot of High Point people, a lot of Blackhawk people, a lot of a lot of MP3 pastors, that group of pastors, a lot of their yeah. people were there, Tom and Tom Flaherty and all those guys. Right. I yeah. felt like there was a lot of folks and they stayed till the end. Like I, when I left, I stayed for all the speeches and all that stuff. And when I left at the end, I was still seeing a who's who of the it people, was, at least I know in the white church in Madison. It's tremendous to see uh, the support from everybody. I'm going to say that publicly. Whoever was watching or listening, uh, the support was tremendous. Uh, we didn't have to worry about anything. Even the, uh, the state police, uh, at least the Capitol Police, uh, mm-hmm. we were setting up and they just came on and said, hey, I thought they was going to tell us we couldn't set up the speakers and things because uh, that morning we changed the location to end because we had so much movement on Facebook on the site that Judge Mitchell had selected for the end that it was around the Martin Luther King um, statue that's downtown, uh, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Street. That's where we wanted to end. But I was like, man, it's uh, too, too many people. Be too many people. But we, I didn't, I still didn't expect that many people to show up. Um, yeah. So it, I, it was, I think it was a time, and I think everybody showing up in the middle of COVID nineteen, uh, people were putting their lives on the on the line. 
Uh, be out there against that injustice. So I commend everybody. There were some older, I saw pl- plenty of people over 50 there. Yeah, everybody. Over 50 years old. Yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for all the support that came from that and everyone jumping right on board uh, to stand with us and walk with us, you know, against the injustice that happens in America towards the African American people. So, okay, I know you've got to go here in just a couple of minutes. So I want to ask you just a couple quick questions specifically related to this. And obviously you don't have to tell people everything, just enough to get people food for thought here. Okay. So I, I do want to ask you two questions. Let me tell you the two questions. You can, then I'll ask you individually. One is, what do you think about questions of concrete, like changes that we need to see over the long term? So we had a great March one night, but over the next three years, five years, 10 years, what actual changes do we need to see take place? Are they policy changes or are they just heart changes or what? And then secondly, I've had a couple of people tell me that maybe in closed doors, maybe when some of the African-American pastors are talking to each other, th- this sentence has come up. I wonder if if the, what, those white folks are worshiping the same God as us. Mm-hmm. Like at, at the white churches, are they even worshiping the same God? It just feels like Maybe the, we're not even uh, we're not even worshiping the same God. Um, do you want to comment on like what people mean by that, okay. and what message there could be for like like more like more white Christians or people who don't don't get that? They're like, what do you mean? What do you mean the same God? That's me. But like that makes sense to some people, right. and okay. we should understand why. So those are the two questions I think I'd like to give people food for thought about. Gotcha. So number one, um, I think uh, we're talking about the changes, the policy, and the heart change. I think both needs to happen. Um, there have been a lot of policies put in place to continue to hinder the people in the African-American community. Uh, the redlining, uh, where black people can't buy houses outside of certain areas. And then when they do move in those areas, they remove the funding. So now the housing market is cra- uh, is crashing, not, not, not as good in those communities. Now they're living in slums. Now you got to put up apartment uh, complexes to force people to live in that you wouldn't allow them to leave. Right. And so now you, you want to call it slums and ghettos, which you forced to happen. So why not it be policies put in place to help more black people to be homeowners? Uh, but then, of course, also goes off with jobs. Uh, we've right. been pushed to the back for jobs. And, and you can still look across the nation. There's still people being in jobs, being the first African-American to be a CEO, the first African-American to fill this slot. And it's because we've been held back for so long from doing those jobs just because we're black. We can have the most credentials. We can have the most education, the most experience. But because someone color skin is different than ours, they'll get the position. Um, and so, and so we look at jobs, we look at education, uh, that, that we weren't able to go to white schools. We weren't able to go to predominantly white schools, but then we're, but then when we started our HBCUs and now you don't look at them as you would see a PWI school. So, uh, so why hinder us, continue to hinder us for being who we are, which you have forced this on us. America has forced this on us. Uh, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to education, when it comes to health, uh, uh, when it comes to life insurance, all these things has not been afforded to us as black people. Uh, and because of that, I think it takes um, policy and heart changes. It takes policy uh, because then we know it's the law. It's the law. You have to interview us or you have to give us jobs. You have to let us in your schools now because 
affirming, you know, whatever it's called. Uh, you, you have to do mm-hmm. these things. And, and it shouldn't even be that way uh, that you got to have a certain percentage of diversity at your schools is forced on you. And so now, even at the University of Wisconsin, where only 2% of the population are African-Americans, right? And it's mm-hmm. not because our kids are not smart enough, but our kids that live here know they don't want to go there because they know how black kids are treated when they do go. Uh, and it's, it's and that's more of a hard change. Like the policies are fixed, right. but the people working the policies or the environment that people have to endure right. so are, are, all that- are unpalatable like, or, or even dangerous. Right. That's what you're saying. And it has to, and it has to, it, it's not just one thing, right? Is that what a lot of African-Americans mean when they say white supremacy? Oh, yeah. They What they mean is like, and, if you're black and you go to University of Wisconsin, and it's just like, you can just tell by the way people respond to you, you're just kind of persona non grata. Like, they just wish you weren't, they're not going to hurt, they might, they, might, they might not be like, do anything vicious or criminal, but they just, they don't like you, they don't accept the way you do stuff. They think everything you do is kind of subpar because of just kind of the way it feels to them that it's a, like, it's a, it's sort of like a, an ether. It's like a environmental thing. That's hard to like nail down, but it's effect feels very heavy. Right. Is that people? Because sometimes I know white Christians who are kind of like white supremacy. That's crazy. Like racism has gotten better in America for the last 50 years, at least. But like what people mean by that is not KKK. They mean, that there is a feeling and a there's something that is very hard to quantify objectively, but is very easy to feel in sort of our, your emotional nervous system when you're moving through things in a certain society that's dominated by a particular majority. Right. Is that, is that a good way to talk about it? Definitely. Um, just look, look at this. Um, MPD, uh, Madison police department put out their numbers, uh, for, citations in 2018 mm-hmm. uh, they pull over white people at 49 percent of the time they pull over black people at 48 percent however only 17 percent of the time do a white person get a ticket 78 percent of the time a black person get the ticket where where <laughs> you, you 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 see what you see what i'm saying they're mm-hmm. pulled over at the same rate but they don't receive the citations at the same rate and what and what I think what a lot of white people don't realize what we're asking for is not handouts. We just want equality. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we, we just want the same fair treatment. Uh, back in 2015, 17, SunTrust Bank, Wells Fargo, major banks were sued because uh, black males were either being denied home loans or they were getting home loans at a higher rate than white males. We had the same credit score, same marital status same economic position that's white supremacy that that's uh white privilege that that we don't want to talk about you, you understand what i'm saying mm-hmm. uh that's that's just last year um the alpha phi alpha uh sorority black uh sorority at the university of wisconsin were included in a video to represent homecoming but during the editing process they were edited out and they were the only black people who would have been on the marketing tool, but people don't don't look at that. How these young ladies felt about that situation—they are part of UW also, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to pay tuition to go there also, but they're not included. I thought they would have edited them in twice. <laughs> and that's and and that that's my issue with Madison, Dane County, Wisconsin. 
African-Americans make up the smallest population of people in the, in the county, right? I'm going to say, mm-hmm. the, let's just speak to the county. For over 500,000 people, probably 60,000 black people. We make up the smallest population. I'm wondering why we can't be intentional of trying to help black people. You know At I'm? least in terms of fairness. Just being intentional. If you can substantiate, like, like there's a lot of discussion about like, well, are, you know, is same really the same when we, when we, when we count some of these things and, and so on. Like I get all that, but like if we can substantiate that it really is same, 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 same. Right. And there's a, and there's a disparity when you really are pointing at things that are the same. You, it seems like you, like you're not really asking for anything but justice there. I mean, in justice in the simplest libertarian sense, not in the broader Christian social sense. Man. Right. Even, even with our homeless population, African-Americans make up, majority of the homeless population in Dane County. And then it's not that large. I think it's like over 3000 people. It's not, it's not, but that's a lot. I'm just saying, but it's not that mm-hmm. large. However, white Americans make up 13% of the homeless population in Dane County, but white people are at the top of the priority list to receive housing before black people. Why do you think that is? They, I don't know. But what they tell me is because uh, you know, high incarceration rates within the African American community. So many black people have uh, have a record, or some um economics again. So they they wasn't able to pay um who they were renting from, and now they have a bad recommendation uh, letter on their on their record. Uh, so so that's okay, Marcus. I know you have to go. I really I want to be careful your time because I know how busy you are. Yeah. I would love to talk about this more. I'd love for you to come back on and talk about this more. I would love for you to talk about that Christian question. So that. as you apply this to Christians, okay, let me hit that, that feeling like are we worshiping the same God? Right. But if you want to say more about that, go ahead. It's your time. Spend as much. I'll take you as long as you can be here. That's cool. Let me let me hit that. I really want to hit that one. Let me say. Let me, and, and it will be done. Okay. Um, Africans were stole from their homeland brought over to America. When they come to America, they become slaves. Um, while in slavery, I believe, I believe it for myself, um, that Christianity was in Africa before it was in Europe. And that's mm-hmm. found that in the book of Acts. Uh, before right. it went to Europe, um, to a predominantly white people, it was in Africa. Uh, you can find- yeah, There's no question about that historically. North, the North African church was the strongest part of the Christian church. Got it. And so yeah. I believe, that Christians, they came over to the state, to the uh, United, the United States. While in slavery, um, white people or slave masters used the Bible as a tool of oppression. Slaves obey your masters. And so they would preach this mm-hmm. slave theology um, that will force these um, people to be fine with the position they were in, but never would teach them Exodus or uh, or Luke four eighteen, where Jesus says, "You know, He come to give liberation." Or, or mm-hmm. six and eight, talking about justly, do justly, love mercy, uh, and uh, and serve your God. So we we, we don't we, they never will hear about those things. It wasn't until the black church is developed during slavery. Um, the black church is developed during slavery, where now black preachers are able to preach black sermons. So mm-hmm. now they're able to preach sermons. Uh, during slavery, but they had to do it what we call bush arbors. Um, they had they would go to church in the morning, listen to the white preacher, preach to them about oppressing them, and then in the evenings they would run off in the woods. They had cut off some spaces in the woods 
where they can have church in the woods. Some would even say um, they would take pots and put pots over their mouths to turn towards the, the master's house that the sound wouldn't go towards the, his house, but they'll just bounce back and go away from the house. So they would holler, they would scream. Uh, and, and it was there in these bush arbors um, where they would listen to liberation of black people. Um, and so I believe this statement of um, it seems as if we're serving different gods comes, comes because if something happened in this nation that surrounds or affects the black community, um, do you preach about it? Um, do you preach about it from a gospel standpoint of this is what Jesus is saying, or this is what God is saying in the death of George Floyd? Um, did that ever cross your mind to say, hey, I got to prepare a sermon this morning about the situation that's going on with George, going on in our country about this black man being murdered in the street? Mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are we intentional? And this 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 is just me speaking. Are we intentional as Bible preachers, gospel preachers, uh, either in the black church or the white church? Are we intentional to talk about these social issues that continue to degrade, kill, destroy black people? Or are we mm -hmm. more focused on what most white churches, this is me talking, is more focused on abortion than mm -hmm. our racism? Uh, mm -hmm. More focused on that's the more social issue that's often our white churches focus on abortion and then also going doing mission trips when you can go down the road where people need the help that you're offering in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I know we can do all of it because we, we support missions at Mount Zion through uh, American Baptist. We support the missions that international missions. We support all of that. But what about our neighbors? Uh, what mm -hmm. about people in our cities? So, so sometimes we can get that, 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 um, that feeling that we cannot serve the same God. That's that's the God of justice. That's the God that loves everybody. Right. That, that's if that's our theological perspective, that we serve a God that loves everyone, no matter who they are. And we can define that from John 316. God loved who? The world. So the world includes who? Everybody. Uh, so so if we're saying God loves everybody. So what is the white church? theological perspective on what happens in the black community. And many will even say if if the national if the Southern Baptists alone would stand up and speak out against racism and put practices in place, it'll change the whole country. Mm -hmm. if, if the, those who are the leadership of the Southern Baptists was just stepped up and because you no know, that's the largest Christian denomination, right? Uh in in, in our nation is predominantly white. Uh, but yet and still, they're still fighting for them. They, at least they just did it was last year, or the year before, denounce racism or denounce slavery. Um, so mm -hmm. so so that's that's what I think that's where that 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 um, that that not, that assumption come from, because, again, you're not in my sanctuary, nor am I in your sanctuary. So I do not know what you preach every week. I do not have your stance on certain things when it comes to racism, when it comes to the social injustice that continues to hunt African-American community. And many think it just happened. No, these practices have been put in place year after year after years after years uh, that continue to hold us down and oppress us. So what 
and let me, I'm, I'm gonna say this and I'm done. Even um, Chris, uh, I forget his name, Christopher something, but he he did the thing at at uh, Upper House where he did a survey of all the churches in Dane County, and he talked. Oh, about, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. So he talked about how you know how everything, uh, how all the churches come together and how they different sermons just evaluate all churches in our county. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the main thing he pointed out is what Dane County has suggested that there is a public health condition in Dane County called racism. Um, and you know, you know it yourself, you know, MMSD, 91% of African-American kids are not reading at the third, at the proper grade level for reading nor math from grades three through eight. And mm-hmm. so- what You I, should say that statistic again. I've heard, I heard it was 18% were, uh, were proficient, but you, you're saying it's it's 90%. 9% that are proficient? One out of 10 are proficient. 91%, according to the four-year exam that happened in 2019, 91% of African-American kids are not proficient. Yeah, and I would just like to add that at Abundant Life Christian School and the schools in our Christian school network, it's 100% of African-American kids that are reading on grade level. Right. So it's, it is possible. It, I mean, I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that in Marcio's school, every single person is, but there's huge, high. huge advantage. And it's yeah. way higher than 9%. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. and so, and so when, when I heard that and while I was at the meeting and he had me up to speak, what, what if, what if white churches banded together with black churches to speak to MMSD and say, fix this? Cause it's more you are it's more white people than black people here. Yeah, and and if you know if you all of the white community want better for the community, why not help the people that are hurting the worst? Right. Yeah. Why why, why, yeah. why, why not be that voice? Why why not step up and say, hey, this this is an injustice. And let me say this, and I'm done, Nick. Fifty six percent of white kids are proficient, and fourteen percent are advanced. So 70% of the same white kids that are in the same classrooms in the same district learning from the same teachers are learning at a higher rate than black kids in the same classrooms. And so that, 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 yeah. that's, that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm new here. You no. Know, so that's, that's why I'm yeah. confused about. And so Mount Zion, we've been trying to do our part with our after school program, uh, with the mm-hmm. program that we have in our uh, in the park now, we're trying to do our part with, yeah. and, but but you definitely have to look at the whole family. I yeah, I mean, high point. Um, I mean, we we support Pastor Rayford when he started eighteen hundred days to specifically work on those first five years of kids. We've been supporting Alex G's summer program to try to keep kids moving forward rather than falling behind in the summertime. A bunch of those kinds of programs, but I think, yeah, I th- I think that part of, I think here's where I. I would I would love to have you on again and talk more specifically about some of this stuff because here's where I, when I talk to a lot of a lot of white Christians here because because we're because because people of conservative faith are more prone it seems statistically to be more conservative or libertarian in their politics and where I where where I get lost or I lose people is the specifics so like we're saying like okay hey, we need to do something about this it is completely unacceptable that nine percent of kids in the African-American period reading on a grade level. Okay. Then we go, okay, specifically, what do we want to do? What do we want to do? Right. right? So oh. one example of this happening right now is there was a big movement to get resource officers that are really police officers out of the school because 
it creates interactions with black youth and that can lead to people getting arrested and all that kind of stuff. Right. I've talked to a lot of people about this. Like, what do you think about that? African-American, Latino, white, right? It's the people are all over the board on it. They're like, well, that could have a lot of bad unintended consequences if they leave. But also I get the, I get the reason why they want them out there. Like, is this really going to work? Who knows? Right. Or, or pedagogy. Like if those kids are all in the same classrooms and 70% of kids are doing fine and they're white and, and, and very few black, but they're in the same classroom, same lecture, same teacher. How are we getting such different results? I mean, unless the teacher is like very openly racist. So, I mean, they're like, really, these are really difficult questions about like, how do you, is it a pet? Like what I've heard is it's a very specific pedagogical difference that the, the entire school needs to be structured differently in the entire system of education. You, you actually teach kids differently if they're catching up than if you're trying to push them ahead. And in a particular classroom, it's very hard for a teacher to do both to, to have kids that are like, basically they could do the work already and you're just trying to get them more advanced as opposed to kids that are already lagging behind a little bit and don't like school right. and feel like it's not a place that they're excelling and then just trying to catch them up that to have them both in the same classroom doesn't really serve. One of the two groups isn't going to get served. Yeah. So which one is it going to be? And so this, this has been like in our schools, we've been talking about this in the, in these, in these private Christian schools, we've been trying to incorporate a lot of these pedagogical methodologies that have been developed over the last 20 years for particular inner city kids who are not on grade level, and getting them up to grade level. And Marcio and T have been working on this a lot too. And man, it gets technical real fast. And there's it's huge decisions about how you structure the classrooms and what kind of teachers you get and what kind of su- what kind of sub training they get. And man, it makes me dizzy real fast. Right. You know? Hey. And getting my whole church on board with a particular solution is really hard. Yo, Nick. Even with, when the people are of goodwill. I say this do something. Yeah. yeah. You know, be intentional about doing something. You know, even, even us at Mount Zion, you know, our, our intentionality is this. We're going to offer something to bring you in, to be, connect you with a one-on-one tutor. And we've had kids mm-hmm. come in that were two grades behind and now on grade level. Right. Uh, that's that's my thing. Do something. Don't. Uh, I know we often say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm liberal. I'm conservative. What, but but mm-hmm. we all are standing for something that's just and yeah. righteous for everybody. Just do yeah. something. Figure it out. Uh, right. Because like what you were saying before, you, were, you, you, you like took us back from like from something to housing, to housing, to loans, to loans, to jobs, to jobs, to human capital. Right. And, and yeah, there's like there is there's probably a dis- discrimination effect, but there's also a human capital effect where like some of these black kids are just not getting the human capital, the personal capacities they need to get the good jobs. And like and you say, well, what, what's necessary? Do we have to spend 50 million dollars on each kid? And the answer is no, you need somebody who's willing to spend three hours a week with them. And that's what you really need is you need somebody who'll sit down with them, yeah, say yeah. nice things to them and get them on reading level. And it's really just time. Yeah. And th- and if you look at um, all of this, start, I, th- I think it starts with school. You feel what I'm saying? Because the mm-hmm. more better educated you are, the more you'll understand life. You'll understand the reasoning for things. You'll understand credit. You'll understand saving money mm-hmm. and money. But yeah, it's. If they're not learning in grades three through eight, they get to high school and they don't need they're not even on the proper reading level once they get to high school. Yeah. So when you don't know how to read, you're going to act out when it's reading time. You don't know how to do math. You're going to act out when it's math time. And so now you get to the 12th grade and you don't have enough credits to even graduate high school. But you've been in school all these days because you go to school right. or they put you on these IEPs. Uh, because I think it says like 50% of the, um, 
over 50% of the boys who are on IEP and MMSD are black males and they are for behavior and not any mental disability. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when IEPs are opened for quote behavioral disabilities, that really opens the door. I mean, like a lot in some ways, you're like, oh, this will be great. You'll get more resources and it'll be fantastic. But like on another level, it's kind of like, yeah, but now like any kid that's having a hard time can like be quote disabled and be on an IEP and and that put it on. They 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 give the parents those choices, and of course, you no. Know, and then sometimes this is the case where the parent themselves hadn't graduated high school and don't have the knowledge mm-hmm. that they probably need to understand this system of this IEP that put them in school two or three hours a day and then put them in a library or something. And now they are still in cars because they're not in school. Um, and, and so it's just, it's, it's, it's layered. It's so much stuff that happens. And, and, and so people take a deeper dive and look at the totality of things that happen in the African-American community and look at the reason why that is not just because of today, uh, but it's because of systems and uh, uh, that have been put in place uh, to continue to oppress us just because of the color of our skin, man. And, and, mm-hmm. and even, you know, like I didn't learn much about African-American history while I was going in school. And I'm pretty sure you didn't mm-hmm. you learn about Rosa yeah. Parks and Martin Luther King. Uh, you, yeah. I, I didn't learn anything about redlining. I didn't learn anything about, uh, black wall street or Greenwood, these places that were predominantly black people who was doing great work and were bombed by white people mm-hmm. uh, because of a white woman. I ain't learned about Emmett Till. You know, it was, mm-hmm. I went to college, you know, went to HBCU when I learned about these types of things. Uh, but it, it, I think that that information, the gathering par- process, I think what you said, changing of the heart and policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people need to be intentional. Yeah. Intentional about looking at what's going on in the African-American community, taking a real look at it. And and people often try to blame, say, well, all black people on welfare and stuff. But literally, it's more white people on welfare than it is black people. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we look at those things and we talk bad. People talk better about the African-American community. And we have we have survived and thrived in the midst of all of this stuff, man. And uh, and and yeah. and I'm and I'm grateful to be African American male um, that's doing great work and being able to do a lot of great things and have an impact on our community and the kingdom of God. Um, so even yeah. when it comes to theology. Yeah, I think one of the reasons too I, w- I wanted to have you on today, and I hope we, I hope we could be on the future. Let me just wrap this up really quick for you because I know you got to go. Is w- one I think a lot of it's relationships of trust, and I wanted people from High Point to hear from you. So anytime you want to be in the High Point pulpit. You let me know and you tell me the dates. We'll get you in there. And you'll hear from my assistant about being back on this if you have some hours here or there. Because I would love to talk more specifically about this. Thank you. I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for taking the time you did, Marcus, to come on today. And I know this will be really helpful for our listeners. And I hope that I want to tell my listeners, Marcus is Marcus believes the gospel. He believes the scriptures. Even if you don't like some of the things he said, if that's not how you politically lean, I want you to understand that he is reflecting from the scriptures to experience to work through these things. And he's a huge resource for us believers to figure out what is just and what is right and what we can try and how we can learn so that 10 years from now, another generation of kids isn't saying, why didn't you help us? And why didn't you care about us? And so I'm really hoping that out of these relationships of trust that we can have partnerships and those partnerships can make a difference and it can really do something. So I just appreciate your time so much, Marcus. Thanks for being on. All right, man. You have a good day. Thanks 
for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.